You're listening to the Brick by Brick podcast, where we take you from the ground up on real estate investing. Join us on our entrepreneurial voyage through the world of flipping houses, managing rental property, and building a real estate empire. Welcome back to the Brick by Brick podcast. I am John Errico here with Ryan Goldfarb. This is part two of a special episode with two special guests. If you haven't seen, listen to part one, I would recommend doing that before listening to part two. But uh, without any further ado, um, Ryan, can you introduce our guests and then we can get started? Yeah, I'd like to thank Josh Ettingen and Donato Satani of DXE Properties for joining us for a part two of this special episode. Last time we spoke a little bit about their entrepreneurial journey. This time we're going to dive a little bit more into the nuts and bolts of their multi-family investing business focused on the Southeast. Yeah. So just as a recap, DXC Properties, you guys invest, I think, exclusively right now in value-add multifamily properties in the, the South, I guess the Southeast specifically. We talked a little bit in the previous episode about how you got interested in that market and how you built the business. I'm curious to know, maybe at the outset, what are the sort of deals or properties that you guys are buying? Can you, can you maybe describe like a prototypical deal or maybe a specific deal that interests you? And maybe we can go from there talking about how you found it, how you repositioned it, how you manage it. Is there one that comes to mind? I would say a typical deal for us would be garden style construction. So uh, you're typically wood, wood frame, one buck up, maybe two or three story buildings, I'd say typically 70s, 80s, or 90s construction, and we're looking for opportunity. Um, we're not going to be, at least typically, your, your core buyers that are looking to place money in, in coupon clip and, and hope that it just went up in value based on natural appreciation. We're looking to create that value ourselves by swinging a hammer or fixing something that's wrong. So we're looking for just operational issues that we can come in and, and fix. And or just opportunity from a from a rent growth or other income perspective where we can make improvements to the inside and outside of the property, drive revenue and therefore create a lot of value. What I, I always say and I hate saying it at the same time, you know, we're looking for deals with a story as well. We're not going to win the widely marketed 50, you know, 20 group offering process type of deal that where everyone's pricing in every last cent of the value add that can be done. I'm looking for something that has a little bit of hair to it, or maybe it's a smaller power pool, but we love the underlying location and we're looking and we're going to fix everything else that's, you know, quote unquote wrong with it. Yeah, I think that one important thing just to add there, you know, We've known for a while when we started this business that the economy was on a what seven year run at that point. And we knew that we'd be building our business into a recession of some sort. No one knew, right, that this pandemic would happen and everyone's souls would be crushed. But uh, we did know that we'd be building into some sort of recession. So we really kind of tailored our investment strategy to focus on location, location, location and specifically locations where we saw meaningful employment gain and employment diversification. And that's what we've tried to invest in in the last three years, were really assets located in good locations that could help us weather a storm when that storm came. 
When you say location in this context, are you looking at like a macro level, like location being a specific city, or are you looking at like a specific area of a specific city? More macro level of like citywide employment demographics. But, you know, also we do look at the micro, right? We want to make sure within our zip code that where we want to take rents, people will be able to afford to pay those rents. So we do do calculations based on the average income of that area versus what our pro forma rents will be. But it's very important to us when we're looking at a city that we see differing employment bases. So we don't want to go into a city, probably find a great deal at a really good cap rate and good cash flow in a city where, you know, there's one big manufacturer. Uh, and a lot of people make a lot of money doing that, but it's just not where we want to be. We want to be in a place where if one manufacturer goes down or if one bank moves, that there's still a lot of other employers that will call it help prop that employment base up. You said you guys love a deal with a story. Can you give us an example of what the story was that you might have been told going in or the story that you crafted going into a deal and how you went about solving that and unlocking the upside, maybe with some numbers or a little sense of the scope? Josh, why don't you give the Augusta story? I like that one. Sure, sure. Um, So the Augusta deal was actually... It was one that was in contract uh, prior to us. Actually, I think it was in contract twice. And it went through the process for just assorted reasons, fell out of contract. Uh, so they were unable to close. Jumped back on the market. One thing we liked about it was it was listed by a, a small broker. It wasn't a big firm like Marcus Milichak, which in Wayfield was a small broker that had their hands on the deal. And we were able to just really set ourselves apart, I think, by having strong terms and really pushing our track record and letting them know, hey, we've closed this, this, and this, in a short time frame. Here's a real deposit, here's a real, I think we have a 60-day close, and, you know, let us take this off your hands and really control it. The story or the opportunity that I, I think attracted us to it was just the rents and the location. Um, it's right, it's like walking distance from Augusta's downtown. But it's forever been known as like the slum of Augusta that no one wants, you know, it's all affordable or very affordable. It's not the best reputation. But yet we kept looking and looking, and despite that reputation, rents were just so significantly below market. And that's, those are the types of quote unquote stories or opportunities that we're looking to chase, where it's really difficult for any buyer to um, accurately predict where you'll be able to push rents. But in the same breath, they're not able to, to price every last dollar into it as you look to resell that deal. So we liked that that sort of combination of factors to make up the story as a, as a deal that we went after is 80s vintage, great location. And untouched. And untouched, right. Never renovated the guy before, didn't do, you know, 20% of the units. You guys get to take the rest. So there had been no renovations, and it was really a clean slate for us to try and reimagine the property. How far into that one are you guys now? We So we closed on that beginning of April, and we purposely took a pretty cautious approach, just given the timing and COVID and everything, where we were, I think, 97% occupied at closing. So we really took the approach of the people are paying, we're keeping them, mm-hmm. uh, just knowing what to expect. But um, we've been doing really well there. I mean, we close, when we close on the property, average rents were $550. We are now, we're in January, so we're 
nine months in, and we've been leasing our upgraded units at uh, $9.75 and $8.99. So it's a, it's a big increase. I, I think it's moving. We've gotten, what, 30%, a little more than 30% of the way through interior upgrades. Have there been any obstacles with shedding that image of the property? Definitely. Oh, yeah. It was really important to us, and I hate painting brick, just because you, you could, if you paint brick, you're going to have to repaint brick. Right. But for us, we needed to just change and reface the property and the image and reputation. And I, I think it started just visually. So we repainted, we, we added some vinyl siding, and we, we really just completely changed the way the property looks. We have nice bright yellow doors to just set it apart. And especially initially, we were getting a lot of would-be ideal renters that were seeing pictures of like the interiors and quartz countertops and these nice, you know, modern finishes, and then saying, "Oh, the property's there. Oh, I'm not interested in that." So it's taken time, but I think we've more recently been able to tap into like the the medical school uh, nearby and get some of those tenants and really just elevate the tenant base. All the impression. Yeah, I'd say a key to this acquisition was it's like one of the worst properties in the neighborhood, but right across the street is one of the best private schools in Augusta. On the right side of us is the Augusta Medical Campus, which employs over like 20,000 high-paying jobs. And then down the street the other way towards downtown is what they call their cyber center, where they're building and rapidly expanding this like cyber warfare like brain center for the US, right? Because the the National Cyber Command is located in, in Augusta and this is like an offshoot like um or, uh, private partnership. Yeah. yeah. Private <laughs> job growth. Incubator. Exactly. Hmm. Incubator. So we saw all these great and employers around us and we saw this donut hole of our property. I'd say another thing was when you went to the property and we first started doing interiors, but we didn't have the exterior done, you drive onto the property and the parking lot was like an Iraq war zone. <laughs> like if, if you didn't blow out your tire going around our whole parking lot, you know, you're a really good driver. So that was one of the things that we needed to take care of right away, which just repave the whole thing and helped us to, you know, sounds kind of silly, but repaving the whole parking lot just brings a whole new image to something. Can you speak to the dynamic between you guys as the asset managers at a high level versus the property managers there as boots on the ground? You know, I think it's something that we really try to take a very active role in, especially for a project like this. You can't be passive. So even, you know, leading up to closing, like we had our marketing plan put together. We've been coordinating with the property manager and their team. We had a business plan, target rents that we were going to look to achieve. Even though we take a very active role in just the contracting side and construction management, our property manager is fully integrated into that process. They're doing unit walks as, as units are being completed and ultimately signing off on these units with different goals that we're setting and, and driving them towards to just continue furthering just the renovation and to allow for... Uh, Avoiding complacency, I think, is, is a big, big piece of it. Um, but a project like that, like, you, you have to move quickly. It's really, really difficult to just 
spend slowly and hope that it's going to turn itself around, but I, I think it's not going to get people that bend it off. Had you done other projects in Augusta, or is this your first or only project there? We have not, but we do have a relationship with a property manager uh, that we worked with that had a presence in Augusta. So they, and they knew of the property already and were able to give us that sort of add boost of confidence hmm. to, to any press this Are all of your projects located in different cities, or do you have any sort of concentrated presence anywhere? We have a few in Charleston. And then right, and then no, otherwise no. We would love to, and are actively, I, I think the next likely second purchase will either be Atlanta or Charlotte, um, where we could add to the existing portfolio. But I think to your, maybe the root of the question, I I, I think uh, it's not, it's there's value having multiple deals in the same location. And um, just from like a sharing staff perspective, and just scale, we're big believers in that and plan to expand. Was it particularly difficult for this Augusta project, for example, to find a contractor that you trusted down there? Was that a big interview process or did you already have connections? You know, we're working with a national contractor actually on that one. Mm. Um, although we did interview a regional one and even a local contractor. I wouldn't say it was difficult necessarily. I feel like that process has gone pretty well in Augusta on contractor side. One thing that uh, we struggle with in New Jersey is, you know, working with municipalities, particularly building departments and zoning departments and all that sort of stuff. I imagine that working in the South is a little bit of a different uh, <laughs> issue, but have you guys run into problems with that, with, you know, zoning or building permits, anything like that? I'll take that one. <laughs> so uh, com coming from the uh, New York metro area up here, I was thinking about not saying it, but I'll say it just because it's true. You know, the government's job up here is to make your life difficult and cost you money. Like, that's honestly how I feel. And it just keeps getting worse as time goes by. Down there, I strongly it's agree. a totally, <laughs> totally different perception. They want their cities to grow. They want their people to have a higher standard of life. And they, they believe that by having not so much red tape and allowing people to come in and invest money, that's how their city's going to grow, and that's how the people that live there are going to, you know, live better lives. So, for example, we had a meeting with the uh, head of the Downtown Economic Development Agency in Augusta, who met with us right off the bat when we were buying the property, had a nice meeting, and she literally said, what can we do to help you, right? We see you're going to come in here, you're going to spend a lot of money, this property's not the, you know, not the best spot of Augusta, what can we do to help you to help you guys be successful? We own properties up here in New York and it's the exact opposite. It's like, no, we don't want that in our backyard. Right. No, we don't want that in our backyard. No, you can't do this. So it's just totally different. And that's one of the great things of why I like doing business down there. Maybe we should move to the South. That, that sounds like a dream. <laughs> In any given project, uh, I know you, you guys are raising money from, you know, your investors. What does that look like? Is it, are you, you know, doing all equity? Is there financing, acquisition financing, construction financing? Like what is the capital stack for any given project? Yeah, so we are always using debt uh, in some way, shape, or form. Debt is so cheap these days that I think one, uh, you're, you're doing yourself and investors a disservice and you're probably not going to win the deal if you're not utilizing debt in some way, shape, or form. I'd say typically it's 
70 to 98% loan to value, the debt that we're, we're taking, and that's either agency loan, so Fannie or Freddie, or a bridge loan, depending on the project. Augusta, as an example, with rent so low and all the work we needed to do, that was a bridge loan. And then the remainder is just equity, which is filled in chunks, and that ranges from on the low end, a $50,000 investor marks up to a million-dollar-plus investor um, that's making up that, that gap. We have not done any deals that have prep equity or res debt. I think we're just trying to steer clear of it for our regular equity sake, that it just makes it such a, it's a much riskier position for them to have additional debt measures ahead of them. When you guys are evaluating a deal, what's the primary criteria that you're looking at? Are you strictly IRR driven? Are you looking to hit a certain return on your own equity? What's, what's that dynamic look like? We're typically IRR driven. Uh, I would say at least 15 net to the investor. We're usually looking over a five-year time horizon. Now, I'm curious, actually, because you guys are obviously, you know, a lot of what you do is opportunistic and probably shorter time frame. Like, what's your typical metric? I assume you're not IRR driven. The way that I've thought about it is that as much as I would love to be purely IRR driven, I think in our space, the variability of what construction costs are going to look like and what the timeline is going to look like make it really, really difficult to hone in on, on a realistic expectation for that. So I actually think that rather than, especially on our smaller stuff, rather than looking at what the return on investment is from a percentage standpoint, sometimes it's more useful to think about even if something's a 20% IRR, especially on some of our smaller stuff in Atlantic City, the more relevant question for us often is, is this even worth our time? Because a 20% IRR on $75,000 in equity is just not a whole lot in real dollars. So that's a big part of it. And so I think that it's kind of a balancing act between figuring out what is just from a purely pure investment standpoint, what's going to move the needle in, or what's... Uh, going to be a sound investment while also looking at what's going to move the needle enough to make this sustainable for us. Yeah, it almost becomes very simplistic. It's like thinking about raw dollars. Right. It's like how much, how many raw dollars am I going to get regardless right. of what the return is? You know? Yeah. And then, and then I, I would say at scale, I, I tend to look at the return on equity or the IRR a little bit more on a portfolio level than I do on a one-off investment. That makes sense. I'm going to give a deal for you guys. It's a return on equity. And generally, that's never high enough. <laughs> <laughs> In New Jersey, yeah. Right. <laughs> For the deals that you guys buy, you know, how, how many deals are you guys looking at? Like, how many offers are you putting in before you get, you know, you actually close on a deal? Is it tons or are you very selective? We try to offer on a deal a week with the expectation of doing, yeah, you know, two good deals a year. Although I think we failed last week, Josh. Uh, last week. But the week before, I think we made a Oh, whatever we can. I think on average it's about a a week. You know, and, and frankly, this year, and I don't know, I, I don't know how it is for you guys in New Jersey, but um, it's been a light start to the year in terms of pipeline. I think there are a couple interesting projects, but definitely a smaller pipeline than looking back at the beginning of 2020 or certainly 2019 or even 18. How are you guys finding the deals that you are um, looking at or offering on? Do you have a network of brokers that you work with? Are there off-market things that you're looking at? 
and predominantly brokers, um, especially in our space as the deal size gets larger. There's very little direct owner type opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, I've done a couple of deals through property managers that knew of a story and on the ground direct work were linked together to find those opportunities. But I think we're finding as the deal size gets larger, it's, it's got to be through brokers in some way, shape, or form on the rough market. Do you guys feel like you've found your sweet spot in terms of what your acquisition criteria is? Or have you learned some lessons from your current ones that you plan to pivot a little bit moving forward? I'm going to steal that one. So I think on uh, number one, the smaller projects we've done um, are just as much work as the larger projects that we're doing now. So we definitely have figured out, although we see some you know good small deals uh, at the end of the day, we're just like, we can't do it. I think from your for your perspective on the question that Josh asked you, at the end of the day, like how many dollars does the whole deal make does come into play when it's a smaller deal. Um, so we've we've figured that out at least that we just need to be at a larger scale. What what is a smaller deal for you guys? We like the fifteen to twenty five million dollar space. If you want us to be specific, I think the other thing that we haven't done yet as a company, but will do. And I'm going to make Josh nice and nervous here is at some point in the next two years, we will enter into a development. It's just my background. It's what I know. And uh, now, especially with some uncertainty in the market, uh, we're really hoping to, you know, find a piece of land at a good price and then uh, go through the entitlement process and be there as the you know economy comes back because it always does in America during you know when we're completing the project. Just from a very high level, you know, if you were to say where am I going to be in say five years or ten years, does it look like you guys are doing majority of this similar type of investing in some development, or do you want to move entirely to new development or get even bigger projects than what you're doing now, go commercial, or what does it look like? I would say one of the biggest lessons I learned in my time working in Manhattan is never be a hundred percent what I would say call it merchant developer where you're finding a piece of land and developing mm -hmm. because your income stream is so inconsistent, right? You buy a piece of land, you start building, you start making a lot of money, you sell that project, you make a whole lot of money and then you go and then you have nothing, right? Right. Especially if you're if you if you buy into the wrong market or sell into the wrong market, you're also in a lot of trouble. At a minimum, we always want the stability of an income stream. I'd say if you had to pin me down, I'd probably say 75 to 80% on call it value add or stabilized rental properties existing and maybe 20% new development where we're really looking to hit that home run. But we want to, you know, we want to hit singles and doubles a lot and try and hit a home run every once in a while. Moving forward, are you guys continuing to operate under the assumption that you're going to be in that five-year mark? Is there, are there instances where you think you guys will go into something and you know turn something into almost a legacy asset that you hold for 15 or 20? Or is the reality that you kind of have to be out of these by five, seven years down the line? You know, I think the reality is driven by initial business time and, and the debt that you take on. So like Augusta deal, as we talked about it as an example, with bridge debt, you know, we're going to have a decision to make in that third year. Um, are, are we going to look at a sale? What are the market conditions for a sale? Or are we refinancing with some sort of 
fix more permanent debt that's going to lock us into the deal for longer. And I don't know. I certainly don't know the answer today, but I, I think um, both options should be good. Going into the deals and looking at it, and just across our investor base, um, typically investors don't like to uh, not see or be able to touch the money for 10 or 15 years. We're often catering a strategy around that uh, five to seven year window um, to satisfy that concern. Do you typically have dozens of investors in the capital stack or is it a few LPs in a deal? I'd say 20 to 30 is typical. Okay. So you're not really making a decision based on what the consensus is. It's really, you kind of, you kind of have to go with what you've set, like with the expectation that you've set up front. Right. It's us that are, it's a, we have done one or two deals where the whole equity stacks funded by one. Right. Yeah. I'd say I've seen from afar, it never been affected on it uh, directly, but I've seen from afar where, an investor group, they all have equal decision-making rights. And I've literally seen a case where one person, one investor was going through a divorce and it would have been really bad for him to like take the profits now, I guess, because of the way that the divorce was working out. So forced a non-sale of an asset that should have been sold. 2008, 2009 happened. It was a hotel, so it got crushed and wiped away enormous amounts of money for all the other investors. So it's just something that I'm cognizant of and not willing to give up. You know, you got to trust us that we're going to do the best for the business plan and not for, you know, an individual's, you know, situation. Question that we often get is, you know, how to fundraise, how to find people to be involved in deals. When you guys started out, I, I think you mentioned in the previous episode that you, you know, you were investing your own money, of course, and then you had friends and family. Does it continue to be that same group of people? Have you expanded your network? And how do you, you know, even go about finding some of your investors? A lot of people are very timid and afraid of asking people for money, right? And it's, it's that way in the real estate business and especially so in the you know investment advisory business, it's the same problem. People are afraid to ask people for money. But that's really how you raise the money, and that's how we've done a good job of raising money from friends and family, um, is literally asking. And I, I think one of the things that we've found is a lot of the people that we thought we would ask for money and would be an easy yes were a no. And people we never thought would ever say yes are big investors, right? And continue to support us today. Um, so you never know where it's going to come from. Uh, and therefore, you should ask everyone. I yeah, think, uh, we found that as well. Yeah, Josh own. is a lot better than that. Yeah, than me. But um, we push each other and get to the end that way. You guys are raising money on a per deal base, essentially per asset. Is it like when you go under contract? Is it all of a sudden like, hey, it's go time, like we have 60 days to raise the money? Or is it like you have dry yeah. powder kind of waiting to go? Or I guess both ways? It's always a very stressful time because it's, you know, it's, it's not a lot of our money, and especially as this deal is fifteen twenty million dollars deal, you know, it's a $300,000 deposit that we're putting up to chase these deals. So we're, we're relying on that investor base that, I guess, uh, time and time again has, has come through for us for good deals. But yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice stressful 30 to 60 days. Yeah, but we're basically we're, you know, we create a list and then we're constantly going through the list, 
you know, we're not pushy with our investors either, uh, which I think they appreciate. If they tell us they're not interested or now's not the time, it's not like we're, you know, calling and nagging people. But we're really just pounding the pavement during that time and trying to make it happen. And you have to have faith that it's going to, and you gotta, you have to have a good deal and believe in it, right? Because people see right through you if you don't believe in your own deal. It'd be great to get together uh, for a part three and just discuss some fundraising best practices because I'm sure there's a lot of commonality there. Thank you guys so much for your time. Again, this is the second part of a two-part episode that we did. And uh, if anyone listening is interested in getting in touch with you guys, uh, asking questions, learning more about what you do, is there a website or an email address they can they can go to? Yes, sure. So www.dxaproperties.com. You can feel free to uh, schedule time right there on our calendars if you want to longer contact us. And like, like we said, we're happy to be um, just a resource or meet a new connection. Hopefully when uh, the world reopens, we can all meet up together and do something in person. It'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. So you'll see, we can give you guys a direct link to the website. Again, it's www.dxeproperties.com. Thanks to Nato. Thanks, Josh. Great chatting with you both. Thank you both so much. And thank you all for listening. This has been the Brick by Brick podcast, and we will uh, see you guys next time. Thanks again. Thanks for having us. Don't forget to visit us at BrickXBrickRealEstate.com for free content to help you along your real estate journey and to follow along on our projects. Subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app and engage with us online via Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and BrickXBrickRealEstate.com. See you next time on the Brick by Brick podcast.